Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlow. I met a traveller from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Tell that its sculpture well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty in despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. These are the words of the British Romantic poet Percy Bysshe Shelley in his poem Ozymandias, published in 1818. There's no doubt Shelley had his own reasons for that piece. For one, it's a not-so-subtle dig of the British Empire, perhaps a little smug in their defeat of Napoleon, and rapidly accumulating a massive empire of their own. A way of saying, hey, this guy thought he was pretty hot too. It reflected a trend among the Romantic movement, and in Britain, on the whole, at the time. Orientalism, a fascination with the East, was very in vogue. Thirdly, Shelley was in competition with another poet, a man named Horace Smith, to write the best poem on Ozymandias. Smith's poem, by the way, is mediocre by comparison. Finally, a giant stone bust, seven and a quarter tons of solid rock, 2.6 metres tall, over two metres wide, had recently arrived in the UK. It had been uplifted from the Ramesseum Mortuary Temple in Thebes, Egypt. Like the poem, it was part of a larger 20-ton statue before it had broken in half, leaving its two vast and trunkless legs of stone standing in the desert. Its subject, Ramesses II, a 19th dynasty ruler of Egypt from 1279 to 1213 BCE. Considered Egypt's greatest king, he ruled long at the height of the country's power. Ramesses II, it is fair to say, had every right to sneer, to invite onlookers to view his empire and despair. The Greeks named him Ozymandias, having misheard his full title. The giant bust, also known as Young Memnon, stood in his tomb, one of a matching pair. Now as far as I can tell, we don't know how that statue broke in half, or how long it lay in the sand. It was broken when France invaded Egypt in 1798. They attempted to steal the bust for themselves, but couldn't work out how to move it across the sand over to the Nile River. And so the younger Memnon lay in the sand, a long way inland for the whole duration of the Napoleonic Wars, a gaping hole in its chest, testimonial to its mistreatment by Napoleon's army. In 1815, an Italian giant landed in Egypt on a whole other matter, and on being asked, undertook to steal the statue for Britain. This man, Giovanni Battista Belzoni, is our Indiana Jones. Giovanni Battista Belzoni was born in Padua, modern-day Italy, November 5, 1778. One of 14 children, he trained to become a monk, then studied hydraulic engineering. 
His studies were interrupted by Napoleon's invasion of the Papal States between 1796 and 98. Possibly becoming embroiled in local politics, an order was made for his arrest, and so he fled the country. Belzoni worked in the Netherlands as a barber, till the Netherlands too became too dangerous. He then packed up and fled to Britain in 1803. While in Britain, the powerfully built, six foot seven inch tall Belzoni found work as a circus strongman. Billed as the Great Belzoni, or sometimes the Patagonian Samson. A quick sidebar on that, reports of Ferdinand Magellan's alleged 1520 encounter with a tribe of giants up to 10 feet tall in Patagonia clearly still had some currency in England. And yeah, at some point we'll probably make a tale of history and imagination about those people. In cyber. He met his future wife, Sarah Bain, who would accompany him on many of his adventures. With the Napoleonic Wars on the wane, he left England to resume his career, travelling to Spain, then Malta, where he met the Ottoman Admiral Ismail Gibraltar, born Ismail Akhtar, who achieved some degree of success fighting the Ottomans in the Greek War of Independence. Gibraltar served the Egyptian Sultan Muhammad Ali, an Albanian mercenary who rose for Ottoman ranks, till he had the chance to make himself Sultan of Egypt. Ali was looking to improve irrigation in the fields. Belzoni knew how to build an efficient water wheel. So he made off for Egypt, accompanied by Mrs. Belzoni and their servant, a young Irishman named James Curtin. To quickly explain the water wheel, Belzoni arrived and built some kind of, quote, crane with a water wheel, end quote. It was powered by oxen and alleged to be four times more efficient than older methods. Ali was impressed by the demonstration, at least until he asked if men could power the wheel rather than beasts of burden. A group of locals jumped on with James Curtin, then all suddenly let go, whether out of fear or bedevilment we, we just don't know. Curtin, on the other hand, held on and was thrown by the machine, breaking a leg. Now, if you're a little bit lost to the specifics of this machine, can't picture in your head, I'm, I'm much the same. I uh, couldn't find a diagram for it, and Belzoni himself, possibly protecting his intellectual property, doesn't really adequately explain it. But whatever the machine was, at this point it was history. Ali wanted no part in this machine, seeing the injury of a person as a bad omen. At a loose end, Giovanni took up an offer from the recently appointed British Consul General to Egypt, Henry Salt. There was a giant statue in the desert. They had a window of time to grab it before rising waters made it impossible for a whole year. As the removal was to be done with Sultan Ali's approval, Belzoni jumped at the opportunity. The Belzonis and their party left by boat for Luxor on 30th of June 1816. On arrival, 22nd July, Belzoni was blown away by the scene greeting him. He wrote, quote, it is absolutely impossible to imagine the scene displayed without seeing it. The most sublime ideas that can be formed from the most magnificent specimens of our present architecture would give a very incorrect picture of these ruins. It appeared to me like entering a city of giants who, after a long conflict, were all destroyed, leaving the ruins of their various temples the only proofs of their former existence. End quote. And so the planning for the removal of the statue began. 
After viewing the bust within the temple, he came up with a pretty basic plan. He'd brought 14 heavy-duty poles of him. He built a cart out of eight of them. The other poles would be used under the cart as rollers. Using his knowledge of levers, Belzoni manipulated the statue onto the cart. Then, with a large crew of local men and some strong ropes, they would drag the cart through the sand till they reached the boat. A long, difficult trek, for sure, considering the weight they were pulling and the sand they would have to pull it through. So the planning was no big deal, but finding a trustworthy crew would prove far more difficult. On approaching the Cachif of Ermintz with his order to collect 80 men to help him, Belzoni was stonewalled. The Cachif would do his best, of course, but all the men were very busy. Belzoni pointed out he'd spotted many men around town not engaged in work. The Cachif claimed, yes, that may be true, but without help from the Prophet Muhammad himself, these men would not take on such a task. The statue was far too heavy to move naturally. Belzoni insisted then he would go find those men himself. The Kachev promised him a crew, who no-showed the following day. That following day, he went back and he got another promise. He went over the Kachev's head to ensure this time these people would show, and yet again, another no-show. He finally got his crew, referred to as Falars, on the 27th. With his 80 Falars in tow, and the magic of physics, four carefully placed levers, he got the statue onto the cart. The Falars dragged the bust out of the temple, Belzoni smashing two columns that were in the way, something which would horrify most modern archaeologists. The statue's slow journey to the edge of the Nile had begun. The 80 Falars were doing the heavy lifting, but Belzoni, not yet accustomed to the unforgiving environment, which could reach up to 50 degrees Celsius, soon became quite ill. He described the daytime heat as inflamed, and the nighttime winds as hardly any better. The rocks around the Ramesseum were hot to the touch and would radiate heat back up at him. He was ill for days, barely sleeping, and unable to hold down any food. By the third day, Giovanni couldn't even stand, and sent the Falars home for the day. On the 30th, however, they were back at it, moving the statue 150 yards. Now they ran into some trouble on the 31st, hitting a spot too sandy to move the statue through, so a change of course to rockier ground was made. By 2nd August, the statue was close to its pickup point, although now in a danger zone. Every year the Nile flooded and would remain at its new height for several months. The statue would be deep underwater if they didn't move it from there very quickly. If stuck, they would have to wait until next year, and have to dig it out of the mud before they got started. At the end of 5th of August, work stopped with the statue about a day's work from the safety of the banks, and only a couple of days from the coming flood. The next day, no one showed up for work. Word went round the Kaimakan, another of the Sultan's bureaucrats, ordered the Falars, quote, not to work for the Christian dogs any longer, end quote, according to Belzoni. Accompanied by a Turkish Janissary, a soldier, Belzoni left for the town to confront the Kaimakan. The two men found each other, and loud voices soon escalated to the two men coming to blows. The heavily armed Kaimakan drew his sword on Belzoni. Belzoni wrested the sword away from him and pinned the Kaimakan against the wall before he could go for his pistols. He shook the Kaimakan violently till he begged him to stop. 
an emissive stop work order had come from Vikachev. Belzoni immediately left for Vikachev's home, upriver in Ermans, Kaimakan's sword and pistols in hand. His visit with Vikachev was far more civil. It was just after sunset when he arrived. He found a room full of guests seated, ready for a meal. Vikachev invited Belzoni to join them. He claimed the men couldn't be spared from the fields at this time of year. It was just not possible. Belzoni countered he would go and get men from the next town to finish a job. Vikachev would lose all the honour of moving this unmovable statue to his neighbours when they completed the task. Did he want to lose face like this? Did he want to be in the bad books of the Sultan, for that matter? Whether this argument, or an understandable fear of a furious, heavily armed giant at your table, won the Kachif over, Belzoni was given his Falars back, and they would resume work the following day. The Falars did return to work the next day, moving the statue into safe territory. Work paused 9th of August, when Belzoni was struck with vertigo and started bleeding profusely from the nose and mouth. They returned to work again on 10th of August and had the younger Memnon safe ready for collection on 12th of August 1816. Now this was hardly Giovanni Battista Belzoni's only adventure in Egypt. While waiting for the boat to arrive, he travelled downriver looking for other treasures. Over the following three years, Employed by Henry Salt, he raided a number of tombs, removing several large treasures, and destroying several large artefacts he deemed of less value in the process. This includes the mummies he crawled over in one tomb raid, which turned to dust beneath his weight. Belzoni commented their taste in his nose and mouth was less than pleasant. He was the first modern explorer to enter the burial tomb of the pharaoh Khafra, he discovered the tomb of Tutankhamun's successor, a man known as I, of whom very little is known. In 1817, he completed the mammoth task of clearing many, many tons of sand from the blocked entranceway of the Temple of Abu Simbel. Belzoni wrote, quote, From what we could perceive at the first view, it was evidently a very large place. But our astonishment increased when we found it to be the most magnificent of temples. Enriched with beautiful intaglios, painting, colossal figures. End quote. He goes on to describe as the first person to enter this temple in at least a thousand years, its scale and adornments. The ceiling, 30 feet high, held up by pillars five feet thick. The walls covered in art depicting wars with their southern neighbors. He entered the tomb of Ramesses I, the founder of the 19th dynasty. And while on this mission, he discovered the far more richly adorned tomb of Seti I, long buried under the sand and forgotten. In that tomb, besides all manner of treasures and things like a mummified bull, was an exquisite alabaster sarcophagus. Of course, he stole this Egyptian treasure for his English boss, under the tacit approval of an Albanian warlord who had declared himself Egyptian pharaoh. Belzoni's return to Britain in 1819, where they exhibited some of their ill-gotten gains. They became instant celebrities, who publicly lectured about their adventures, on a stage set up to look very much like an Egyptian tomb. In this show, Belzoni would tell his tales of audacious engineering feats, conflicts with locals, and grave robbing in unhealthy temperatures. He would perform stunts like unwrapping a real mummy for the crowd. 
Giovanni wrote a book of his adventures in Egypt and Nubia. Soon bored, however, he set off for Timbuktu. When Morocco refused him entry, he landed off the coast of Guinea, West Africa, with a plan to trek through Benin. Giovanni Battista Belzoni died December 3, 1823, in Guato, Benin, most likely of dysentery, though fellow adventurer Richard Francis Burton claimed he was robbed and murdered by locals. Thanks for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written by me, Simone Whitlow. Produced and all music, yours truly. Visit the blog historyandimagination.com. Links to social media and liner notes. We have a Facebook and a Twitter, even a Pinterest. We also have a Patreon if you wish to help support the show and keep it going. If you have enjoyed the show, please leave a positive review. We'll be back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.